And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know how you assess your status and power, but I'm just wondering how many of you do feel powerful and rich? Powerful and rich. Not that many powerful rich people in the room, huh? You don't feel like Bill Gates or Elon Musk. You don't feel like the president or CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You don't feel like you're part of the 20% that hold 80% of the wealth. Well, recently I went on a website called givingwhatwecan.org and it looks at uh, wealth and it also looks at control, freedom and access to resource. And there's some interesting statistics there, especially for North Americans. If you have a $100,000 family income with two children, and two adults, you're in the top 3% of the world. If you earn $50,000 as a family with two adults and two children, you're in the top 10% of the world. If you earn minimum wage as an individual in the US and you're alone, you are in the top 5% of the world. Your control, your freedom, your access to resources like healthcare, education, and security are right up there. You're at the top the pinnacle, you are powerful, and whether you like it or not, you are rich. So money buys control and freedom and access, and we have more control, freedom, and access, pretty much everyone in this room, than over 90% of the world's population. And yet, we are consumed by consumerism, particularly at Christmas time. Now, there's a... Uh, an economic concept that came out of, from a Yale professor which looks at gift giving and consumerism on Christmas. And it looks at when you give a gift, you spend $20 on it. 
But the person who receives it thinks, oh my gosh, I think that gift is really only worth $16 to me. So there's $4 or 20% loss straight away, just as soon as you give a gift. And with the amount of consumerism that we have in the world, every Christmas we lose effectively $50 billion of value by giving gifts. Now you might think, well, I don't give gifts for those reasons. But it is an interesting academic exercise. And, and that's partly, all of this is partly because we have moved Christmas, or the idea of Christmas, to our local New England towns. And our strip malls are way busier than our churches. Today, I would like to go back, at least for the time of this sermon, to those dusty, dirty streets in that West Palestinian town of Bethlehem where the Magi brought the very, very first Christmas gift to the baby Jesus. And I wonder what their response would have been when, uh, when they received the gift from the Magi, when they received gold and frankincense and myrrh. What would you have done when you received them if you were Joseph and Mary? How would you have reacted to that? Would you have moved your kids to a better school? Would you have bought a house in a better suburb of Bethlehem? Would you have loaded up your 401k? Now again, these are New England frames of reference. What does a poor family in a dusty Palestinian town do with such gifts? First thing it screams is security risk. This is a little town with basically no security, and here they are with gold and myrrh and frankincense, incredibly valuable gifts. Joseph and Mary were not 10 percenters. Now, we're not told how much they were given or how they spent it. I suspect they spent a lot of it going to Egypt to flee Herod's uh, mandate to kill all baby boys under the age of two. But we'll come back to these gifts at the end of the sermon. But first, let's look at the two power centers in this account who are, like us, top 10 percenters, Herod and the Magi. Unlike Mary and Joseph, they are used to having control and freedom and access to resources. Let's look at how their lives were disrupted by Jesus and how they responded. Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the Ten Percenter, King of the Jews, uh, but he wasn't Jewish. That was a little bit of a misnomer. He was actually an Edomenian, uh, a descendant of Esau. If you remember the story of Esau and Jacob, he's on the wrong side of the genealogical line. He shouldn't have even been king of the Jews. Now, his bio is pretty extensive. He was actually a pretty good king. He wasn't really a king because he was a puppet ruler of Rome, but he was a pretty good king by ancient standards. He was appointed by the Roman Senate in about 400 BC. He was known for being incredibly generous. He would actually often remit taxes when things were hard in the population and there was famines or starvation was hitting and people didn't have enough money to eat. In fact, in 25 BC, he's famous for melt, melting down some of his gold ornaments and selling it to buy corn to feed those who were suffering in a famine. He was also incredibly productive. He was known for erecting buildings, amphitheaters, monuments, pagan temples. He was a prolific planner and builder of, of, of buildings. 
In fact, he's known for refurbishing the second temple. The great temple in Jerusalem that was built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah was in disrepair, and he embarked on a massive building project to expand it and to refurbish it. He's also incredibly ruthless. He murdered his wife, he mur one of his wives, he murdered three of his sons, and he murdered his mother-in-law. He was married nine times, and whilst I'm sure some of that had to do with lust, it was primarily to do with making alliances with other political powers nearby. He was a little bit paranoid, he was in afraid, and he did what he had to do to keep his power. There's a famous story about when he retired, he moved to, Jer uh, retired, he moved to Jericho, and when he was about to die, he rounded up all the good people that were popular and important, and he ordered, when I die, you are to kill them all, because I want weeping in the streets when I die. The ultimate, I guess, of appearances, right? He wanted those tears to flow just so he could, even in his death, claim that they were for him. So let's read how this generous, productive, yet ruthless man, this 10 percenter who is, whose life, how, let's see how this life is, is disrupted by this new king that comes on the scene. And of course, we know at this time in Jerusalem, the political situation is tense. There's been a number of uprisings of people who claim that they are messiahs, that they are the coming kings. They're coming to fulfill Israel's political aspirations of being free from Rome. They're actually called zealots. That's where we get the name from. And they rose up as basically local terrorists or freedom fighters to try to overthrow Rome and liberate the Jews. So it was a very tumultuous time. But let's remember, Jesus was a baby. He hardly qualified as a terrorist at this point. Let's read verses 2 through 9. The Magi asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, he was disrupted, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And now they're quoting from Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child as soon as you find him report to me that i too may go and worship him and that's when the magi leave herod now notice he's not questioning who jesus is he's not wondering is this another nut job zealot trying to overthrow the political no the magi and the scripture have confirmed that this is the real messiah to herod he's not responding to a political uprising remember jesus is a baby a baby in a manger He's threatened by a baby whose true bloodline, unlike Herod's, is back to King David. Now he has options. He could choose to worship this Messiah. He could choose to bow down. He could choose to say, you know what? I'm tired of trying to hold this all together, of having to marry different women, of having to kill different people to stay in power. I am 
the, the anxiety, the paranoia, it's too much to serve the real king. I'd like to give up trying to maintain everything with my idea of what control and freedom and resource is, and I would like to tap into the control and the freedom and the resource I find in the true king promised in scripture. That's not what he does. He counts the cost, and although it's not said here explicitly and it may not have happened cognitively, that's what's going on. That's what happens when people encounter the Christ. They have no choice but to count the cost. That would mean giving up his throne to someone else. He would no longer be the ruler of his own life. As a 10 percenter, he would have to use the control and the freedom and the access he has differently to build this baby's kingdom and not his own kingdom. And he had a choice. He could have chosen to do that. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, it's harder for 10 percenters to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, shameless plug for those of you who are thinking about joining a small group. We have the men's group uh, on Sunday nights at uh, our house at 7.30. Come and ask me if you want to go. But recently we looked at this passage, and what we realized is it's bookended by two pieces. It's bookended by the question the man asks, which is, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And then it's finally answered by Jesus who says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And we are reminded by Jesus himself then that Herod's efforts are not going to work. His resources are not enough. His control is not enough. His freedom is not enough. He will never experience what it is to be truly free, to be delivered, to be restored, he doesn't have it. He's forgetting that with man this is impossible. It is through the work of Jesus that we are restored. So here's the stupidity of Herod the Ten Percenter. You see, he's not really in control. The freedom, if you call paranoia freedom, and any access he has to resource are not of his own doing. And he's not really a puppet of Rome either. Everything he is and will be is determined by that baby in Bethlehem, the creator, the sustainer, God in the flesh. Now, and this baby is worthy of Herod's fear. You see, Herod is right to be scared. His problem is not that he's scared. His problem is he's not scared enough. He thinks he can manage this Jesus situation, that he can contain it. He can compartmentalize it. He's too used to control and freedom and access. The foolishness of the ten percenters. So we move on then from Herod to the Magi, also ten percenters, and we know they were ten percenters because they had gold and frankincense and myrrh. You didn't really have gold and frankincense and myrrh unless you were in the top echelon of society. Now, bio is a little scant, I'll be honest with you, but it has been padded with very creative songwriting, like the one we sang just a minute ago. And we learn a lot from our songs. I was actually talking to uh, Maggie last week about how much we learn and where we learn it from. And, and it's probably true that uh, whilst sermons are important, our songs are a lot more memorable, and we probably learn a lot of our history and our theology from them. So I have a confession to make about that song. I didn't know the words 
from what they were written down. I learned that as, even as a child uh, without actually seeing them written. So first thing that line goes, we three kings of Orientar. Now I'd heard of the kings of England, but I'd never even heard of the country Orientar where, where these kings obviously came from. So uh, the first thing we've got to do then is, is sort of deconstruct the mythology around the kings. Where scripture is silent, tradition has made a lot up, and that tradition is not very accurate. We three, no, no, scratch that. We don't even know how many there were. There could have been 10, there could have been two. There was more than one, that's all we know. Okay, so not we three kings, we kings. No, no, we don't even know that they were kings. They, in fact, are described with the Greek word magoi, which, which actually, uh, according to a Greek dictionary that I looked up, uh, to get a long and more comprehensive definition is priests, uh, wise men, and they mean wise men in the sense of consultants to people. They don't really mean they were wise. They had a reputation or they made a, a projection of being wise. Experts in astrology, interpreters of dreams, and various other occult arts. They were masters of the dark arts, if you're a Harry Potter fan, except it's not a joke, it's not a story. They really were connected to things which were evil and destructive. They were sorcerers, in effect. So here we have uh, these people who were the heroes of our story, and yet they were connected to the spiritually dark forces of the world. And so what do we do? Do we call them sorcerers? No. We call them kings, or we use the Greek word anglified magi. So we'll keep doing that because no one wants to think of them as sorcerers, but let's be aware of the reality here. So we, so we from the Orient. Well, Orient. Perhaps the word Orient is actually a derivative that says East of Europe. But in a sense, they were, and so when the Bibles were translated, where it says they were from the East, well, they were from the east of Jerusalem, not the east of Europe. So yes, they are technically also east of Europe, I guess. But we would be better off just saying, we magi from the east, rather than reading into it all that is in the song that we sang before. Okay, so let me read a little bit about them and how they reacted to Jesus in verses 1 and then verses 9 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now jumping to verses 9 to 12. After they had heard the king, that's Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now what's going on here? What's going on with the star? Are we saying that they used astrology to find Jesus? It's a bit of a head spin. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And we don't know much about it, but we can certainly say that God has broken into their world in a way that was meaningful to them and brought them to Jesus. And even after encounter with Jesus, 
when they're leaving, he uses dream interpretation to make sure that they don't return by Herod. Now, this is messy. This is messy theology. We don't do astrology and dream interpretation like that. God is mucking it up with them in their theological mess. And it's really messy. Astrology and dream interpretation, and God uses it. He uses it to introduce Jesus to these ten percenters, these sorcerers. And God is still at work that way in the world today. He breaks into the things that we create, the silly, foolish pieces of wisdom that we construct, and he declares his presence. Now, I do want to note here that there is a refining piece in the middle of this, a scriptural piece. They come to Herod and they go to Micah 5, and they realize that, oh, there is a scriptural piece that's pointing to Jesus as well. But this is primarily through circumstance, with a tweak from scripture, that they find Jesus. And I think we have to be humble enough to see the parallel here. Disruptive grace. Disruptive grace hits Herod like a cold fish in the face. It hits the Magi like a beautiful promise that they can embrace. How many of us are here because of disruptive grace? Financial crisis, relational crisis, medical crisis, existential crisis, substance abuse crisis, career crisis, and not always crisis. How many of you are here because you were doing research in science and you just asked the question, how could there not be a God? Or you were sitting there and a baby was born, your baby was born, and you looked at that little child and you said, how could there not be a God? Or perhaps in your hour of need, a stranger came up with incredible kindness and blessed you, and you said, how could there not be a God? I'm experiencing the hand of God. This disruptive grace that pushes us and drives us through circumstance to God is something that we need to say is happening out in the world too. The sorcerers of our time are the merchants and, and, and the people living in Denver's. And we need to be out there asking them, do you understand what you're seeing? Let us help you with scripture point and point you to Christ. Let us make sense of the circumstance you're experiencing. In a strange way, in a positive way, we need to be Herod in this case. Not Herod that rejects the truth, not the truth, but the, the cost of Jesus, but Herod that finds out and points them through Scripture to the real Christ. Now, how do the Magi react? In their broken, messed up way, they follow, they listen, they search, and they find. And what do you think their reaction is? when they find a poor family with a grubby baby dressed in rags. Do you think they, think they found what they were expecting? Do you think they were disappointed or shocked? We don't really know, but I'm pretty sure their paradigms were shocked here. There's no palace for this king. There's no royal insignia on the door. There's a grubby boy in rags, and that's about all there is from this poor family in a dusty Palestinian town. Now, probably, Somehow they recognized him, definitely they recognized him, and worshipped him as king. Now, probably they didn't fully understand. It doesn't make sense. It's challenging. It's confronting. But they offered their best, and they remained faithful. When they encountered this 
grubby boy in rags instead of a king in a palace. They gave him the best of what they had and they left faithful. And we see that in verse 12 because they respond and they don't go back to Herod. So as fellow 10%ers, we need to ask the same question that was asked of the Magi. Are we willing to be disrupted? Are we willing to be taken off course? Are we willing to reorient our lives to encounter Jesus? Are we willing to react to God's leading in circumstance and in scripture? Are we willing to have our paradigms disrupted? Are we following, listening, searching, finding Jesus in everything we do? Now, that was Herod, and that's the Magi. I was originally, when I was preparing the sermon, going to have three disruptions. The disruption of the Magi, the disruption of Herod, and the disruption of Jesus. And I was going to go up to verse 15, and I was going to talk about Jesus and Mary and Joseph having to flee to Egypt. But then I realized that the disruption for Jesus was not Bethlehem to Egypt, but heaven to earth. And when we think of the Magi, and we think how humble they were, we have to ask the question, what about God himself? How humble, isn't that a strange word to use for God? How humble God was. Let me read to you from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this is truly disruptive grace for Jesus, humbling himself to become a man to save us. And it's ironic because in becoming a man, it's caused many of us to lose sight of the fact that he was God. And like Herod, we think we're in control, that we're free, and we have the resources we need to succeed. Now, earlier on, I talked about these gifts, and I asked the question, do these gifts, when we give them, have financial value? Do they lose value, in a sense? Now, I doubt that someone giving gold, myrrh, and frankincense to a poor family, they lost value. In fact, I'm sure they were much more useful to Joseph and Mary than they were to the Magi. They needed them a lot more. But there's also another thing, another thing wrapped up in these gifts. You see, these gifts are symbols. And I don't know if the Magi fully understood it at the time, but gold is the symbol of royalty. Kings drink from golden cups. They eat on golden plates. They use golden utensils. And Jesus was the true king, the descendant from David, unlike Herod. Jesus is the real king. Frankincense is an incense that is burned when you worship God, when you worship the deity. So we have this symbol of the king, we have the symbol of deity, and myrrh, now this is the weirdest gift to give anybody. Myrrh is the spice that you embalm a body in when they die. Now why do you give myrrh as... as expensive and valuable as it is, why do you give myrrh to someone who's just had a baby? Because the myrrh is the spice that he was anointed when he died. He was born to die a redemptive death. 
So Christ is king, Christ is God, and Christ is redeemer. Herod knew this. The Magi knew it in their way, and we know it. And so we need to ask ourselves, how are we like Herod? How do we intellectualize, spiritualize, and rationalize Jesus away? How do we compartmentalize him? How do we lose sight of the reality that he's the creator and the sustainer God, the everlasting king and the redeeming saviour? And we need to ask ourselves, how can we be more like the Magi? Reorienting, listening, searching, finding Jesus through circumstance and scripture in everything we do. And I think this is the key to it all. If you are not disrupted, if these truths are not disrupting, disrupting your life, if these truths about Jesus Christ as King, Jesus Christ as God, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if they are not disrupting your life, pray that they do. So let's pray now. Father, we are confronted by this story of the Magi. It is a sweet story. It's a very sweet story when you look at it through the lens of 21st century New England. Not such a sweet story when we look at it through the lens of first century Palestine. Father, give us wisdom to see that this is a messy story, a complicated story, and it's a story of people being willing to be disrupted by your grace, being confronted by your truth. Father, we pray for hearts that are like the Magi, that want to listen, that want to follow, that are willing to be disoriented. And we pray, Father, that you remove the sin in our hearts which makes us like Herod, that makes us fearful, that makes us compartmentalize you, that makes us hang on to the controls and the freedoms and the resources that we think we have to maintain our own kingdoms, but are really gifts from you. Help us to have eyes that are open and to see you for who you really are. Disrupt us. Disrupt us. Disrupt us some more. We ask this in Jesus' name.